scripture reading is from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 32, and 38 to 39. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God. Those of you who are visiting today, um, I just want to uh, tell you I'm not Scott Strickman. He's on vacation for this month, and we should be praying for him. He invited me to fill in, and I've been very happy to do so. I'm, uh, I'm in the middle of a series on what I'm calling um, upstream politics, not so much how do we deal with specific issues, but what sort of perspectives and what sort of attitudes do we begin with? Do we, uh, what is in our hearts upstream of our engagement in public life? And I'm going to continue that series today. I perhaps do not need to call attention to how angry we have grown in this country and sadly in the church. You may have had a church blow up over politics. You may have your family at odds uh, within itself over politics. It's a very sad state of affairs. Now, what we may not be as aware of is how much fear plays a role in the anger. People, we, are often angry because we are often afraid. It was easier in the past to see those who disagree with us politically as fellow travelers, as fellow Americans who are perhaps mistaken in their view of the best ways forward in our life together. But these days, something has shifted, and we are much more apt 
to see them as enemies in some essential way. Enemies of us, enemies even of God. People who hate us, who hate God, who are out to destroy any number of things that we hold dear. And this makes us afraid. And because it makes us afraid, it makes us angry. If we didn't care, I suppose we wouldn't be so angry. But I'd like to think that we actually care. We care about what's going on in our world and in our country. And, uh, and therefore, when things seem to be so at odds with what's right, uh, in our point of, uh, to our way of thinking, we become fearful and angry. Now, in the third message of our series on upstream politics, I want us to see that we do not need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid. That God has given us not a spirit of fear, as Paul said to Timothy. He has not given us a spirit of fear, but instead something else, but of love and of power and of self-control. We'll begin in the first part of what I'm going to say to you today, identifying some of our political fears. I won't cover them all because there are a lot of them out there. And then try to see something of how the gospel, particularly as we find it laid out in Romans 8, how the gospel can reduce those fears and actually begin to replace them with love that really brings wonderful change to ourselves, to our families, and to those around us. I think first of some of our political fears. You and I, perhaps, fear violence from any number of different sources. We fear violence from the mob. Some predict repeat assaults on our nation's capital or on state capitals. Or we fear, perhaps, violence from vigilantes taking the law into their own hands or from violent protesters or from police or towards police. We may perhaps fear sinister forces at work in our culture. And it comes from every side. Perhaps uh, we see America as being derailed by coastal elite intelligentsias that care little for traditional America and her values. Or perhaps we see, we fear America being derailed by an authoritarian and populist reaction to the influence of science and to the influence of reasoned discourse. Or we may fear losing America as home. The loss of values, culture, and influence that we once enjoyed, together with the freedom to champion our cause and our views, this can be the concern of some whites, and I know it is, who fear that their culture is being canceled by people from the other side who are shouting them down, who aren't allowing them to express the traditional values that are dear to them. Or we may fear, almost on the other side, same faith perhaps, but a different fear, we may fear never finding America as home, despite the fact that maybe things had started moving in a direction that we were happy about. We fear the loss of whatever gains in cultural privilege we may have made, together with the safety and opportunity to champion them. And this can be a concern of minorities, of uh, many minorities, certain minorities in our country. Or here's another fear. We may fear the collapse 
of our noble and fragile experiment in self-governments, in learning how to live together with our differences. This, frankly, is one of my fears. It's one of the things that I fear for my children and for my children's children. As anger and mistrust erode confidence in our institutions, the confidence is way, way down with respect to our institutions for many people. And as we as a nation consolidate increasingly behind either our great red walls, the Midwest and the South and Fox News, or we consolidate behind our great blue walls, the West Coast, the Northeast for the most part, and MSNBC. We may fear the collapse of our union, not likely attended by the violence and expense of the Civil War back in the 1800s, but by legal means. I have read credible accounts of the possibility of a California-led secession and other accounts of a Texas-led secession, one from the left and the other from the right. We may fear um, that. And then perhaps getting really close to home, we may fear division in our families, deep, heartbreaking division in our families. Parents who are furious at us because of the way we think, who don't understand us, who reject us because of the way we think on the one hand, or on the other hand, if we're parents of adult children, fear of the loss of our adult children as they, it seems to us, are being swept up by the assumptions and practices of a culture that is extremely different from the one that we knew and the one that we grew up with. And finally, we may fear division in the church. One of the reasons we don't want to talk about politics at church, one of the reasons, is that we're afraid of the church blowing up or we fear churches one to another will blow up and distance themselves from, another, from one another. A friend uh, recently told me of a conversation he had with an influential black evangelical pastor in Philadelphia about gay marriage. The pastor described himself as a traditionalist on that particular issue, but he also said that he couldn't talk about the issue with his white evangelical pastoral colleagues because they considered it to be an essential issue to evangelicals and he did not consider it to be an essential issue. He saw too many parallels between the cultural treatment of gays and the cultural treatment of his own people, of blacks down through the history of our country. And the list goes on. You perhaps have other things that you're thinking of, but that's the reality of our time. And I think if we're not troubled by it, we've buried our heads in the sands. We're not living. We're not living our lives out. We're, we're, we've gotten wrapped up in our own private worlds and we're not really caring about what's going on in our country. Now this leads to the practical question which I want to spend the bulk of this message on and it's this. How do we bring such fears under control so that they don't drive us so that they don't lead us into great fear and great anger. To use Paul's language to Timothy, how do we follow Paul's advice and fan into flame the Holy Spirit who has been given to us so that his power and his love and his self-control 
fills our lives, first of all, our private lives, and then spills over into how it affects our public lives. How do we do that? Well, a great place to begin, it seems to me, is by allowing Romans 8, the second passage that was read to you, allowing Romans 8 to take our political fears down a peg or two or three. Did you notice uh, when Paul's account uh, of things in Romans 8 was read that there was no fear? There, there, there is no fear in his words. There, you read it again sometime, you'll notice the tone, there's no fear, there's jubilation, there's joy, but there's no fear in his tone, only confident joy. And this is remarkable. It is really remarkable when we think about that man's experience, what he had already been through and what he was about to go through. By the time Paul wrote Romans in eight, around A.D. 57, he had long since lost his status as an established and powerful leader among the Jews. He had been disowned by his own family he had been disowned by his own people. He had been beaten and imprisoned numerous times. And he, had, uh, he was likely to face more of the same. Nero, who would order his execution uh, as part of his brutal persecution of the church, was already in power in Rome in A.D. 57. Listen to Paul's own summary of his experience, written two years before he wrote Romans in 2 Corinthians 11. He writes this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times, he's itemizing his life experience. Five times then, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, I, I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and in exposure. What a life that guy lived. And he was shortly to be killed off by Nero. Whatever uncertainties or difficulties you and I face, they are no match for the difficulties that Paul faced. But Paul was not swept away by them. He wasn't controlled by them. He wasn't infuriated by them. He wasn't afraid. Love, not fear, drove him. Uh, we feel his love not only in the letter to the epistles, but uh, to the Romans, but the letter to Timothy, which Paul wrote from prison. And yet it's filled with love for Timothy that puts Paul out of the, out of the, out of the center of Paul's concerns. Now, why was this so? Why was Paul so full of love and of joy and of confidence in the midst of really, really difficult circumstances. I can think of at least four reasons that arise out of Romans 8. And follow along if you have Romans 8 in front of you. Um, first of all, 
Paul knew that God had everything, everything covered. Everything was covered under God's hand. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things means exactly what it says it means. All things means all things, even and perhaps especially the difficult things in Paul's life. All things includes election results that we don't like or even believe in. It includes allegations of voter fraud, allegations of voter suppression. It includes power-hungry and mean-spirited public servants who seem never to get along or to work for common, the common good. It includes police brutality. It includes the violent torching of cities. It includes assaults on the Capitol. All things even includes the end of America as we know her or have wished her to be, as it meant the end of Israel as Paul had known her and had longed for her to be. All things, uh, uh, Paul is not saying that any of these things are good or that all of them are good or certainly that any, any of them are or that God approves of them or that we should not do whatever we can to resist what's wrong in the things that are wrong. But Paul is saying that God works them together for good. God is sovereign. God is in charge. He's in control of the nations, including this nation and its parties and its problem and its various subgroups. God is in control. So that's the first thing. God's got everything covered. Hopefully that gives you a little peace. Hopefully it makes you a little bit less fearful. It makes me less fearful when I remember it. Of course, I don't always remember it. But here's the second thing. Paul knew uh, that the good that God has in store for us involves the restoration of or the satisfying, uh, satisfying uh, uh, um, uh, 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 replacement of the things that, are, uh, that we lose in this life. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's all things again. You should do a study on the word all in this passage. It comes up over and over and over again because Paul is completely controlled by the idea of the fullness of what the gospel delivers. So anyway, uh, here we encounter a second all things. Not only does God work all things, good and bad, for our good, he also intends that that good will make up beyond our imagining for every loss and every disappointment, for every cruelty and every pain. God will wipe out every tear from our eyes, wipe away, sorry, every tear from our eyes, as it says in Revelation. We will be able to bear any loss brought on by the politics of our time or of our future, not because that loss might not be very difficult, but because what awaits us on the far side of that loss will dwarf its significance and even reveal it to have been in God's wise hands a kind of a picture or at least a prelude to the pouring out of his satisfying goodness. Jesus says, I mean for your joy to be full, not partial, full, 
spilling over in great abundance. Corrie Ten Boom, taking you back to World War II. Corrie Ten Boom and her sister Betsy endured a Nazi prison camp during World War II for harboring Jews from the Nazis and then being caught doing it. One bleak afternoon as they and a group of friends were clandestinely studying the Bible in their barracks, Betsy suddenly burst out with joy saying this, it's the fleas. That's why we can study the Bible without the guards disturbing us. These miserable fleas are why we can do what we're doing now and be so encouraged. The, the guards can't stand the fleas. Silver lining. See, in a dark cloud. Clouds have their silver linings, not just in our eyes, not just because we're Pollyannas who are looking for something that's not there, but also in reality. They have silver linings in God's providence. God speaks to us in them, telling us that he loves us and promising us the good that he has in store when all is said and done. God will make up for every loss, however severe that loss might be. That's what Romans 8 tells us. Let me move to a third thing uh, that helps to knock our fears down a peg or two. Paul knew that the good that God has for us goes beyond restoring or compensating for what we have lost and is in fact far more satisfying than the things that we have lost. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Uh, the good, brothers and sisters I might add, that good is not necessarily as given to us here that we should be immediately comfortable or that we should be immediately happy. We may for a time, for perhaps a long time from uh, one point of view, find ourselves uncomfortable and unhappy. We may suffer painful loss both personally and nationally, so it may be. It is rather that we should become ourselves good. The good that God has for us is that we ourselves will become good, really good, noble, praiseworthy people, that we ourselves will become good, conformed to the image of his Son, as Paul puts it, and that we will or should belong, that we should be the firstborn and will be the firstborn, uh, or rather that we will be together belong because Christ, our brother, is the firstborn of many brothers and sisters of an enormous family that, um, that we have together in him. God is at work to make us good. God is at work um, to make us... Uh, uh, think about the character, uh, about character issues. Uh, I, I, think, I think it's fair to say that, yes, we want to be safe, but I don't think we're satisfied with being safe. I think we want to be better. I think we want to be more loving. We want to be more noble people. Think about a, a character issue in your life. Say you envy people too much. Do you want to spend eternity apologizing for that thing? Or do you want to get rid of it? <laughs> do you want to even spend the next 20 years apologizing for being covetous and envious? No, you want to get rid of it. You want to see the end of it. Well, God is at work through all things 
including political upheavals, dangers, and disappointments, to get rid of it. I have a pastoral friend whose church collapsed after 10 years of hard work. It was very, very hard for him to deal with. But he was able to report afterwards that God used it to make him a better person, to make him a more humble person, to make him a sort of person who was more empathetic, a better listener, and to make him a more contented person, a person who discovered that he was able to enjoy in a much more simple way, to enjoy God and to enjoy life and to enjoy people. God dealt with things that weren't right in his life. God is at work, secondly, to make you and me part of a marvelous and vast community, that is to make Jesus the firstborn of many brothers. That community, the community that God is building us into, and he's building you into right now as you sit here and look to the right and to the left and see these different people uh, from different backgrounds and different educations and different races. As you think about that, God is at work to make you part of a wonderful, marvelous, and vast community. <clears throat> and this community that God is in the, in the business of making us into is, will be completely safe because it will be made up entirely of really good people. The first part of the promise, you see. The goodness will be all over the place. People we will never grow tired of or disappointed or hurt by because they will, each in his or her own way, be like Jesus. And that community will be enormously satisfying because it will take in all sorts of people. It will even take you in. And it'll take me in. We won't get pushed out or manipulated or ignored or canceled or made to feel second class for any reason whatsoever. Because we are black or white or Asian, because we're Argentinian or American or Somalian or Chinese, <clears throat> because we are a professor or a plumber, because we are rural or urban, because, dare, dare I say it, we are Republicans or Democrats. Now, isn't this what we really want deep down? In the midst of all our fighting and squabbling, isn't it what we're really grappling for in our often disappointing efforts to get politics really to work or to avoid politics altogether because we're afraid it won't work and we'll only wreck whatever fellowship we have? Isn't this what John Lennon imagined in Imagine, that wonderful song that we all know, what we created the UN for? And what we were reaching toward when we wrote our Constitution in 1787, stretching for what we called a more perfect union. Our country is never going to be everything that God or you want it to be. Let's just face that. In this life, you are not going to be everything that God or you want it to be. But the effort to stretch towards a more perfect union is pleasing to God. It is good. And so we stretch towards it. And we're involved in this national experiment that began in the 18th century uh, to try to make that happen in the face of enormous differences. You know, it's not like they were all united back then. The Constitutional Convention nearly blew up repeatedly <laughs> over the slavery issue, over urban stuff, over industrial stuff, over, over uh, agrarian stuff. I mean, it was really tough. But they worked towards that more perfect union. Last March, just a few months ago, I attended an online debate hosted by 
an organization called Better Angels, an organization dedicated to promoting civil conversation across political lines. The proposition under de debate, and that particular thing that I attended, was this, quote, Vo voter fraud is a major problem in U.S. elections, unquote. I'm sure you all have opinions about that issue, and those opinions were all aired in this debate. At the end of the debate, the panelists repeatedly shared their delight and relief in having been able to engage with each other in such a respectful way. Well, that delight and relief gave me a little tiny glimpse, glimpse of the good towards which God wants to bring us and into which he will eventually bring us. Think of someone you know right now. Just think of someone you know whose politics you hate. Got someone in mind? It might be a relative, it might be a co-worker. You got the person in mind. Think of someone whose politics you hate or fear or don't understand or someone you actually fear because of their politics. Now, imagine that person when God is finished perfecting Christ in him or her. Or if God perfects Christ in him or her. Doesn't that help you want to get along a little better? I hope it does. Doesn't it help you to want to listen maybe a little harder? So that's the third thing um, that arises out of Romans 8. It helps us bring our fears down a peg or two. Finally, the fourth thing, and then I'm done. Paul knew that the good that God has in store for us is absolutely guaranteed. It's guaranteed in history by his own demonstration of extraordinary love. Verses 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can you and I be sure about all that we have been saying? How can we be sure of deep and profound and satisfying transformation in ourselves and in our friends? How can we be sure of satisfying community, of family across every social and economic divide? How can we be sure of the restoration or compensation for every loss? How can we be sure of the healing of every wound? Not because of our present circumstances. No, that's not how we can be sure. Our present circumstances may be difficult and they may get worse. Sorry, <laughs> but such is life, okay? It's not because our circumstances are presently easy or will be in the near future. Not even is it because we feel happy. We can be sure not because we, uh, uh, we can be certain not because, not even because we don't feel, or not, not because we feel hopeful. We may not feel very hopeful or happy at the moment. We can be sure of God's future love because of the demonstration of his past love in history. 
he did not spare his own son, we're told. Uh, how He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also? How can it possibly be, having done that, that he will not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? N.T. Wright comments on this statement. He says, if God has done the hard part, and he has, there will be no problem with the easy part. If God has given the most valuable treasure possible, everything else will follow. And John Stott, commenting on the same passage, says, in giving his son, God gave everything. Already, the cross is the guarantee of the continuing unfailing generosity of God. And God has not simply given us lovely things, and he will not simply in the future give us lovely things, homes, health, a measure of freedom, good friends, and so on. He has given himself. That's the thing that's so profound about this. This God gives himself to ordinary, rebellious, unbelieving, mistrusting, fighting, sometimes cruel human beings. God has given himself, and he will give himself. He has given his son. Octavius Winslow says, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Verses 38 and 39 pull everything together. For I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life, and this is a long list of things, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all, there's all again, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can never lose the love of God in Christ. It is with us now. It will carry us through everything if we belong to Jesus. Every social upheaval, every disease, every pain, every political upheaval, even death itself. Think for a moment of what you really love in life. There are certain things that I really love in life, and I imagine they're kind of like what you love. We love love. We really love love. We love loving and being loved. And we know we love loving and being loved because when love fails or falters, it breaks our hearts. It does, doesn't it? We also love certain things because of their beauty or because we get to share that beauty with those uh, uh, that we... Um, that we love and want to share that beauty with so that they can themselves enjoy it. And we understandably fear the loss or diminution of beautiful things. And we love goodness. Every time you hear a story about somebody being good, every time there's a feature that you read about in the newspaper or you see on television and news where someone really reaches out and does something amazingly sacrificial and good for somebody else, you, you know, your heart goes, yes! Oh, I needed to hear that, this, especially because I just heard 1,800 other stories, which are really depressing. We love goodness, seeing it and being it. And when it is threatened, we grow disheartened and fearful. My, here, but think about what I, I said, all those things that we love. God 
is all of those things. It is from Him and Him alone that all those things emanate. He is the source of them. He is love. God is love, and God is beauty, and God is fullness, and God is goodness. He is the giver, we're told in James, of every good gift, and he's the giver of every good gift. Whatever good gift you have ever received, it's come from him, and he's the giver of every good gift because he is the the source of every good gift, and you have him forever in Christ. You will never lose. If you belong to Christ, you will never lose the source of all of that wonderful, good stuff. It's yours and mine, never to be taken away. I have a friend who's an economist who was asked once to give expert testimony at a trial that featured the Microsoft Corporation. And he was planning to give testimony that wasn't quite uh, helpful towards the case that the Microsoft Corporation was pressing. At one meeting with Bill Gates that he had prior to the uh, to, to his testimony, his public testimony, uh, he had a long, long conversation in which Mr. Gates sought to persuade him of a particular way of seeing things and therefore a particular way of giving testimony about things. And the conversation abruptly ended when my friend said to Mr. Gates, Bill, there is nothing that you have that I need. (laughs) And that ended the whole conversation because Gates knew he couldn't couldn't persuade (laughs) my friend to change his way of seeing things. There is nothing that any person or any party or any family member or any nation has that you or I ultimately need. For we have God, and we can't lose him. We have God who gave his son for us, and we can't lose him. Now, I need to wrap what I've been saying up by asking you to imagine for a moment what your and my public life, our public discourse, might look like if we were less afraid and instead more loving. If we allowed, this, if, we, if we fanned into flame the spirit of love uh, and, and allowed the Holy Spirit to put down fears in our hearts, knowing that here are some things to think about, um, knowing that we have God in Christ and can never lose him, we will be more apt, it seems to me, simply to talk with our neighbors, whoever they are. We'll be more apt to listen to them, especially ones that we disagree with, and we'll be more apt to think about what is fair to those neighbors, whoever the neighbors are. They might be our gay neighbor, our straight neighbor, our Muslim neighbor, our Mexican neighbor, our angry Christian neighbor who doesn't like us because he thinks we're of the devil, or our gun-carrying neighbor, or our non-gun-carrying neighbor, or our enemy. Knowing that we have God and can never lose him, even if everything else collapses around us, here's a couple of other things to imagine what might happen in the way in which you conduct yourself uh, publicly. We will pray more and we will argue less. We will simply not need to win. We will stop arguing. We, and I'm not saying there's no room for argument, but we won't have to win. We um, will pray more. We'll be more gentle. We'll take a genuine interest in the human stories and fears 
of those who oppose our view. If you're, if you're not afraid, you will be aware of the fears of the person who hates you. And you will therefore be more able to listen and more willing to listen and to love them. We'll be more apt to do what is right, loving our neighbor as ourselves, even if it does not promote our personal interests or remove the outcomes that we don't want. We'll be more hopeful to do small acts of kindness, justice, and civility, even if they do not produce the results that we wish that they would produce. And we will, because we're set free by the love of God, we will be less swayed by conspiracy theories. They won't get under our skin quite so much and more willing to listen to alternative news sources. We'll be more bold about what we believe, but we won't have to win. Uh, think back to the last election. Presumably, if you're an American, you voted in that election. I hope you did. Um, think about your vote at that election. What drove it? Deep down, what drove your vote? Your vote? Was it fear? Was it hate? Or was it love for the common good according to your best estimate of how to pursue the common good? Let me put the question another way. Is our politics about circling the wagons around what we want or around what we don't want to lose or is it about wrestling together before God to love our neighbors as God has loved us is our politics about loving a narrowly defined circle of neighbors like the Pharisees did in Jesus's day or is it about finding the best ways in an imperfect world to love all of our neighbors as God has loved us as God loves us still and as God will always love us through death and into the rebuilding of a whole new heaven and earth. Imagine a Congress, imagine a family, imagine a nation, imagine an extended family, a church or churches filled to overflowing with people, starting with you, who actually believe Romans 8. Just imagine that. And then do pray for it. Do pray for it. I, I, think, I think the present, and I'm so distressed about our situation in this country, it really troubles me. But I think the very trouble that distresses me so much is an extraordinary opportunity for me to beg God to intervene and bring not superficial revival, but a change, deep change, that leads to self-policing, that leads to love and joy across the board and across churches and uh, throughout government. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we saw that? Even a little bit of that. And there, there is, there, it is happening. But we need to pray that it will happen more don't, don't shortchange the power of God. Don't shortchange the, the, the gift of the Spirit that is in you. Plead with the Lord to change this country. Or if you're from another country, to change your own country by filling it with people who trust the love of God and who are animated by that love. All right, I really am done. Okay, let's pray. Father, we don't really even know how to 
measure how much you love us, but we know that you tell us that you do, and we know that you demonstrate that love in the gift of Jesus. So thank you. We pray that you will animate us and bring change to us uh, because of the knowledge of that love. In Jesus' name, amen.